This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. You're listening to the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and it is officially summer outside. And let me tell you, it is hot. I am recording this uh, this intro way, way down south in Louisiana. I'm on vacation with my family. We've gotten to uh, got to enjoy a few days at the beach, gotten to catch up with family members. Now we're over in Louisiana catching up with friends and Uh, I'm recording this just off the interstate, so if you hear some background noise, sorry about that. Uh, Sitting in my car where it is oppressively hot and humid, but hey, it beats beats kids screaming in the background as I try to record this intro. So anyway, I'm excited to be here this week, have a little bit of a rest, but then also I'm excited to get back and start uh, focusing on some of the summer whitetail chores I've got planned. It's time to get all my trail cameras out. It's time to start... Uh, looking over my gear, time to bump my archery practice up a notch or two. And uh, we've got some really, really cool whitetail episodes coming up, including one where we're going to cover hunting in the Northwoods, something that is totally foreign to me. And so uh, really, really excited about that. I don't want to mention who our guest is until uh, until we can see this thing through, but I think you're going to want to hear from who we're going to have on in a couple of weeks. But in today's episode, we're going to be chatting with Dan Donovan. He is one half of the husband and wife team that founded the Muskie Fool Fly Fishing Company. Now, Muskie Fool Fly Fishing Company is the first and, as far as I know, the only fly shop that is 100% dedicated to muskie fishing. Now, I'm really glad I was able to catch up with Dan. Uh, Just a great, great guy. Uh, the Muskie Fool Fly Fishing Company is a Wisconsin-based business. They, he and his wife started it uh, basically out of their home in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, the muskie is the state fish of Wisconsin, as you probably know. So this podcast is like the most Wisconsin thing I could possibly be doing right now. So uh, just really excited to have him on. And let me tell you, it will not be the last time I have Dan on. The dude knows muskie. He is passionate about conservation uh chatting with him honestly got me pretty pumped about trying musky fishing you know growing up in the deep south uh, musky fishing was not a thing for me and uh, though i've lived in wisconsin for a year and a half i've yet to get out and pursue musky uh, but i do have every intention to and i really really want to try it out on a fly rod so uh, if you're not a musky fisherman, then there is a lot for you in this episode. Uh, lots of good info here to get you started, including uh, where and how to target these fish. If you're already a musky fisherman, 
then I think you're going to be uh, itching to get after them with fly gear by the end of this episode. And uh, even if you don't musky fish and don't plan to, I think you're just going to like hearing from Dan. He's just a good guy. Uh, and I'm excited about what's to come for musky full fly fishing in the future. Uh, after you listen to this episode, head over to their website, muskyfull.com. Check out their shop. Make sure you uh, check out their musky on the fly starter kit if you're interested in getting started fly fishing for musky. It's a really sweet deal that gets you everything you need at a really good price. Uh, and that, that's everything you need to get out uh, on the water. Uh, I know I've got my eye on this kit and I will be snatching one up pretty soon. Uh, also head over and follow them on Instagram at muskyfool. Uh, also, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you access this podcast. Let us know what you think. Give us your honest feedback on how we can improve this resource and make it more useful for you as a Wisconsin outdoorsman. And follow us on Instagram so you can keep up with all of our outdoor adventures. Now, with that said, I do have to issue a bit of a warning as we get into this episode. We had an audio issue with this podcast. I'm not sure what it was all about. Uh, it didn't we couldn't hear it when we were recording the audio was crystal clear i get done i play it back and mm, i can hear this audio problem so i'm going to do my best to get that figured out for next time Uh, but you can definitely hear it so please bear with me it's worth it to hear all the great info that dan shares Uh, with that said let's jump into our conversation now with dan donovan all right, on the line with me now is Dan Donovan from the Musky Fool Fly Fishing Company. How are you, Dan? Hey, what's up, Josh? Thanks for having me, brother. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Busy season for you. It is. It's been a busy, uh, we're, we're coming up on almost eight, nine months of being in business, and we're kind of right in the middle of the season with a little bit of a uh, hot weather issue going on, but we'll we'll deal with that as we can. Yeah, it's been blazing these last few days. Yeah, it's it's kind of sped the whole thing up. It's like we're in the July pattern now in June, and that usually means stopping fishing is on the horizon. So, yeah, tell me a little bit of, about that. So, what what does that mean for you? I know um, what little bit of fishing I've done here has been primarily fly fishing for trout, and I know hot weather, no bueno. So, uh, how does that yep. affect musky fishing? Yeah, it's you know it's it it has an effect on all fish in different ways. Right. And, um, we're actually gonna, I don't know when, when this airs, but right around this, we're going to come out with kind of a second version of a blog post talking a little bit about it because it's, it's a really actually opaque subject. Um, I think we'd all love to say at 80.5 degrees, the muskies start dying. So we should stop fishing. And it's just not that black and white. Um, there's, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. That's actually ongoing. There's some hot water studies happening in different parts of the country right now on muskie. Um, so what we, what we tell people is, um, you know, at over 80 degrees, what we start to see with the muskie is they start to get into spots with cool water springs, you know, where they're out of sunlight and they really stop feeding. And, and that's the indicative of a sign of stress. Um, and, and we've learned a lot of this from some of the folks at the Wisconsin DNR. Jordan Weeks is on a several different musky podcasts. He's a fish, fisheries biologist. And I'm, for, for lack of a better term, I'm parroting a lot of what he's told me. Um, I'm, okay. no, I'm no biologist by any means. But um, 
where there's some confusion is there's some folks, some big names in Muskie that talk about, um, you know, over 80 degrees dissolved oxygen goes down and that's why we should stop fishing. But the actual data says that, you know, the amount of dissolved oxygen at 86 degrees even is still totally sufficient for muskies to survive. So mm. it's not really that, you know, a lot of anglers see floating fish in the hot weather summer. So we immediately think, oh, it's the, it's the hot weather. But that could also just mean we're seeing more fish floating because they get bloated up from, from warm temps. We could also just have more angling pressure because it's summer and everybody's mm. getting out. So there's, you know, I think there's a... Um, an angler's code with muskie uh where that you'll hear the 80 degrees is kind of the the hang it up number or at least weight um but there's it's again it's it's super black and white so you you won't hear a fisheries biologist say that they'll say you know do do what you think is best and that's what we definitely tell people the cool i guess cool thing about muskie is they do self-regulate a little bit so over 80 degrees uh it, it gets really tough to catch them um so yeah. it, it kind of kind of takes that out of the equation to some degree but um it sounds like they're tough to catch anyway tough to catch anyway <laughs> and it's 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 like they really stop eating when they get to that 80 85 type of temperature and then just another little thing to add like we're talking about water and you know it can be in a lake up to you know 200 feet deep on a river two feet deep so water temperature is different throughout the water column right i was actually out um with a, a capital cities muskie league last tuesday and uh, we got to the boat landing on the northwest end that's really shallow bay 86 degrees we drove around you know to the south end got 79 degrees we put the trolling motor in that went four feet down in the water that was 74 degrees so like you know it's not again it's not the black and white that we would hope um but it, yep. it really what we encourage people to do is check water temps look at it you know, don't be necessarily, I, I wouldn't recommend you fishing in a bay that's 86 degrees for muskie. But um, like I said, I, I say that with a grain of salt because the science is a little opaque right now. And hopefully um, as we go along, it becomes more clear as some of these studies start to get published. Sure, sure. So hopefully we can be better stewards of the resource, yeah, right? Absolutely. And that's what, that's what we ultimately care about the most is, yeah. you know, yeah, there's absolutely a recreational element to this, right? The the state of Wisconsin makes a lot of money and, and we make money off of people angling for muskies. So we want to encourage that, but there's a line and there's a, there's a responsibility, an obligation, if you will, to, to make sure we're doing it right. So there's muskies, there's more muskies next year than there are this year. For sure. For sure. Well, you mentioned a second ago, um, <clears throat> you say you've been in business for eight or nine months. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So you started a business during a pandemic. A retail business too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that that's kind of where I want to start. I, I want you to tell me a bit about about you and obviously your wife. You guys are a team in this yep. thing together. Uh, I want you to tell me about your brand and and really how you ended up on this uh, in this current career path. And some of the emails we exchanged, you said you you used to do something a, a little bit different, <laughs> kind of than what you yeah than what you're doing now. So. Tell me about you guys and how you ended up where you are. And then uh, tell me about your brand, what your focus is, what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And I'll start by saying, you know, hopefully, hopefully if we do this again, we can get Jen on. She was tied up today and she was super bummed to, to miss uh, out. But um, yeah, so, you know, I, I'll just kind of the last 10 years of my career has been 
you know, kind of the chief financial officer of, of technology startups, mainly healthcare and early stage stuff. So it's kind of like the first, uh, in, in layman's terms, the first, first business person to get added to the team, if you will, which always kind of makes me puke in my mouth, but that's how I was <laughs> categorized. Um, but, you know, you got, you got whether software developers, software engineers, CEO, visionary types, right? There comes a point where it starts to work and they're like, okay, we got to build a business. We got to raise money. We got to pay bills. Uh, we got to forecast all that stuff. That's typically when I kind of start to get brought in. Um, so I've been around that, been around that three times with three different startups. Um, kind of, you know, once they hit a certain point, it becomes a different animal. You know, they mm -hmm. start looking to go public or they start looking to get acquired and, um, you know, honestly, that game is not as fun to me. I, I kind of like the street fight. I kind of like the, the whack-a-mole, you know, build the plane while you're flying at startup world. It's just, it, I might be a masochist and there, maybe that's why I like the musky fish too, but, um, <laughs> that that's what I've been up to. Um, again, in healthcare, we're, we're here out of Madison. So we have a little healthcare niche going on. Um, a lot of cool companies doing amazing things. Um, I'll give you a brief, brief background on my wife. Cause then I'll put those two together. And while I was doing that, she was kind of, you know, growing her career as a retail executive. So started with Land's End, um, which is here in, uh, well, they're actually out in Dodgeville, but pretty close to Madison. Yep. And then, um, about five years ago, she moved over to Duluth trading company. Okay. We know them for their underwear commercials. Yeah. Um, yep. Awesome underwear, shameless plug. Um, but uh, she's, she's, you know, right now running the, the men's business and the, the hard goods business for Duluth Trading Company. So loads and loads of retail experience, both e-commerce and direct brick and mortar, um, which is kind of an, another important factor to why we, why we set out on this journey. But then the third element is kind of fishing, right? Why, why musky? Why fishing? Why us? And, you know, when we're not working over those last 10 years, we've been pretty much relentlessly trying to chase musky on the fly. And um, we both took different paths to get there. You know, I was much more of the classic raised in Wisconsin. Dad and uncle took me fishing as a kid um, pretty early on, right around eight or 10 is when they started to musky fish. And that's when I started to musky fish conventionally, you know, with conventional gear. Um, took a little bit of a detour into, you know, trying to play college soccer and golfing and basically competitive sports. And um, near the end of college, kind of, you know, let those go and really, really refocused on, on my passions, I guess, if you will. And, and that was fishing. And um, being in Wisconsin, I started to pick up a fly rod at that point and trout fished, but I was still conventional fishing for muskie. And it, it didn't take much to put those together. There was a couple, there's a, you know, a film that came out a few years after that. And a couple different folks, you know, really that set the stage for this whole sport. And um, I think we got it. We got to name them because they've done so much to build a reputation around Muskie. You know, you have kind of the OGs in the, the uh, Bill Shears and the Larry Dahlbergs. Um, you know, you got the, the generation after that, the Blaine Chocolates, Brad Bowen, Chris Willen. Um, I mean, I, I will not be able to name them all, but there's a really good host of folks that really pioneered a lot of this stuff. And, um, that, that excitement that, that took me over about 10 years ago, never really looked back. And when I started picking up a fly rod, trout fishing and conventional fishing is also when my wife was kind of like, you know, I, I she didn't have a, 
a fishing family, if you will. But she's like, I'm not, I'm not letting you go down this uh, adventure on your own. Like, let's, I want to <laughs> learn and I want to learn the right way. And I don't want you to just, you know, carry me along. I want to, I want to do it on my own. So that was, I was, I think any guy is probably like, yeah, you want to row the boat and cast and fish? Like, let's, let's, <laughs> let's do it. This is awesome. So we kind of, we kind of got into it together and um, over the course, you know, 10 years, it's gotten better, like in terms of being able to find the right gear and figuring out the right tactics and the right rods and lines, but it was by no means straightforward. It was still kind of this stepchild of the fishing community, right? You, you, you didn't fit in in the conventional musky world because you had this weird whippy stick thing that you were throwing around and you didn't fit in in the fly fishing world because, you know, that is still so much trout at the center, um, you know, and, and how we fish for them is incredibly different. Um, so that that was always kind of in our head. I don't think we ever thought we were going to start a fishing company, um, but, you know, a couple of different things happen. I had an opportunity to kind of walk away during the pandemic from the current job I was in. And we were actually up uh, in the sweltering heat of July last summer in uh, Hayward, kind of ground zero for musky, musky fishing, at least in Wisconsin. And um, that's when it kind of started, the pieces started to come together. We weren't doing a lot of fishing because it was so hot, but we were floating down rivers and, and just having conversations about what we wanted to do. And where we were going to go and what skills we had to bring to the world and what, what was important to us. And, um, it actually kind of started with the, you know, how do we, how do we make a difference, um, in conservation? Muskie kind of get ignored. They get kind of put in this, like, Oh, they're a really tough fish. We don't need to worry about them. And in fact, here in Wisconsin, that's the apex freshwater predator. I mean, that's, that's the indicator species of how well our water is doing. And it's wild and native for the most part, wild. It is stocked as well, but it's native to this region. And, um, you know, like that's the fish we cared about and we wanted to see more of that. And we kind of backwards engineered that into, well, there's also this huge white space for a, a really a fishing brand, a fly fishing brand built around muskie. Um, so we, that was kind of phase one. And then, Phase two was we were in a pandemic, so it was, didn't take, you weren't going to be able to convince me in September of 2020 to open a brick and mortar fly shop. Um, I, I just, at that point, I, if I would have opened a door, I would have actually closed the door at the same time to say like, nobody can come in um, based on the current, <laughs> the current rule. So it didn't make yeah. sense. We have, you know, online technology background. So to get a website up and running was, was no real problem. So we started, you know, musky only, online only. Um, fly fishing shop in September and um, wow you know that's that's kind of where it all began and you know as we look forward we're we're definitely going to be building on that and we can chat about that here as we go that's awesome so tell me about the reception then I mean if this is this is pretty unique in the fly fishing world and in the musky fishing world so um, what's the reception been like you know I, I it's hard for me to answer that because I I will always err on the side of you know trying to be humble about, I think it's been really good. I think it's kind of shocked me actually. I knew that there was a big community. I mean, there's a Facebook group with 7,000 people in it and there's, you know, you see it on social media and you know, the people doing it. Um, but this whole niche within a niche, and we definitely got some weird looks from vendors too. And we said, we're going to be musky only. They're like, Oh, good luck. That's not going to work. You're, <laughs> you're crazy. Um, 
so, but I think what we were able to do and what we were really trying to continue to do is kind of curate that underground kind of basement cottage industry that has, because it's been this ugly stepchild, it's had to kind of do its own thing, right? So you have people selling flies on social media or Etsy or eBay. You have rod makers who are not some of the major brands building musky rods. So you have all of these niche things happening just because there is a community there, but it never really had um, a, bit, a home. Um, you know, I think that's, that's what we've seen. And then I think we're able to also get those folks that had no idea what it was excited about it and be like, oh, wow, there's, there's a fly shop just for musky. This is, I got to check this out. It's kind of been a little bit of the other side of the reception. Yeah. So we, we, we get both sides of it. We get a lot of, um, I think musky's kind of cool because it's actually, despite it being a, a, ch a extreme challenge just to catch them, no matter how you fish for them, especially on a fly rod, it is a weird like entry into fly fishing. Um, because you got a lot of gear, gear, conventional anglers who have dedicated so much to chasing muskies. And then they, they see how they react to flies. They see someone fly fish for them. And they're like, whoa, I want to do that. And a lot of them actually then start fly fishing for bass and trout and salmon. Um, and then conversely, you know, you, I think there's a big movement in fly fishing, um, you know, a little bit away from the historical dry fly, a river runs through it type of brand and much more into the like, want to catch big fish and throw in big flies. Um, whether that's for big trout or smallmouth or, you know, crazy fish like arapaima and tarpon and all this other stuff. So I think muskie just like we're right, we're right there at the top in terms of fresh water. It doesn't, the flies don't get bigger <laughs> than they do sure. with muskie. And, uh, you know, it's definitely, you're going to fight, you're going to battle with a, a tough predator. So it's, it's a pretty fun deal. Yeah. Well, I, one of the, there are several reasons that I wanted to have a conversation with you, but one of them was I'm exploring fishing. Um, I'm not from awesome. Wisconsin. I'm from uh, the deep South, Alabama, Louisiana. Okay. And yep. uh, so growing up as a kid, here's what I know of muskie fishing. I'm watching the outdoor channel and there are these guys out in a small boat on a choppy lake. It looks to be very cold, very rainy. They've got rain suits on and they occasionally catch a fish. Now it's a big one, but they only occasionally catch it yep. and they hold it up. And it's this giant with these big teeth hanging out. And, but that's it. It's, and I'm like, Oh, why? You kind of mentioned it earlier, kind of a masochist if you're, <laughs> if you're musky fishing. Right. So, so I want to know from you straight from the source, like why musky? <sighs> It's, it's, it's a, it's such a good question. And it's, it's also, I think a question I struggle to put into words, but I, the, I haven't encountered another fish, even a small muskie that makes my knees tremble and my hands shake and my heart beat. And I mean, I've heard stories of people seeing their first muskie and being like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to fish for that fish. That was scary. So there's just, <laughs> there's something you know, and, and in Wisconsin, there's just this folklore and myth and history around it. You know, you've had, I mean, the, the two world record organizations for all of fishing were splintered because of a dispute on a muskie. Like, it, like wow. so it's, it's just got this, it kind of gets in your blood a little bit. And, and then I think the challenge is obvious. I mean, it's, it's not easy. You know, I, I think 
there's a version of fishing that is uh, more about catching fish, which, you know, is always fun, whether that's smallmouth bass or going pan fishing or trout. Like you, you expect to go catch several fish. And, you know, if you're not, you, you're like, well, what's going on? And with muskie, I mean, you can, you can go days and weeks and we talk, you know, years where you're just like, what's it, it just, it, you know, and some of it is like mental too. You get the yips and you get weirded out and you just, you're in your own head about it. And like all of that psycho analyzing stuff. Oh, I love it. I love it a lot. So I, I think several different factors there and let's be honest, they're big mean and they just absolutely crush, crush lures and flies. Like it's, you know, it's, a smallmouth bass kind of make me like smile and have fun and like musky like i feel like i'm like playing a competitive sport like one-on-one -on -one with this beast like i gotta be focused and dialed in and so it's just a different it's a different thing but i love every aspect of it that's awesome so kind of a i don't know if you've heard much about like different the different kinds of fun so you've got the type one fun which is like the yes i'm pan fishing right and i'm i'm just reeling them in all day long throw it out reel them in uh then there's the type two fun. That's kind of like, sometimes this kind of sucks, but when, when it comes together and we talk about it later, it's like, Oh, wasn't that fun. You know, and you that's could, where, that's where memories are made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's probably like the definition of type two fun, you know, the second definition might have musky fishing next to it. Cause it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't go out there. If, if I go out fishing with someone and their expectation is to catch a fish, I try to level set that real quick. <laughs> like <laughs> if we see one, you know, and, and, and there's, that's, that's another joke of musky fishing. Like if I asked you, you went trout fishing and I asked you how you did, you'd be like, Oh, I either caught a few or I, I caught a lot or I didn't catch any. And if you ask someone how they did musky fishing, it's like, wow, we saw one or we had two follows. And like, that's the, the language totally changes because the expectations wow. are totally different. Uh, we, we had a week, we had a Northern opener, I think we counted over 25 follows uh, in three days. No, no fish were eating, but they were following all the way to the boat. Probably another cool reason, like, you know, not many fish are notorious for the follow, like all the way to the boat, you know, and trout, we think about spooking trout and muskie. It's, it's just, it's not a thing to really. They're, they're coming into the boat. They're, they're keyed in. So that's, that's probably part of it too, but yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, you mentioned you fished a tournament the other day. How'd you yeah. do? Yeah, uh, we did not catch a fish. I think okay. there was one fish caught. So wow. There was, uh, uh, there How was many groups are we talking? There were, I will probably get this wrong, but there was, I think, 12 teams, 24 guys. Wow. Um, you know, and we saw fish, right? Like, <laughs> there's the language again. <laughs> had a few follows. Yeah, but, wow. Um, the musky tournament thing is fun for me because, um, a yeah, I'm, I'm competitive. You know, you play sports, everyone, you want to go win. I think musky is cool because a lot of luck involved in it. Like, you know, you could go out there and be like, you know, it only takes one fish. So, so true. Not many times do you get that level of data either. Where like, if I went out on my own that same day and didn't catch any, it's, it's like, well, I wonder what I did. But to know, like, no, there's 24 people out there, there's still one fish that could have been caught. You, you get a little bit of, of, you know, bigger sample size. And then I also love it. Just it, it's I think it's a way to get the word out about muskie on the flies. I love going out with 22 other conventional anglers and me and this other buddy, uh, you know, we're fishing with fly rods. And we, I felt like I had just as good a chance as anybody else out there. So 
Sure. Sure. And that's awesome. Well, uh, it's time for me to kind of let my, my ignorance shine in full glory (laughs) here. Uh, I know nothing about the sport of, of musky fishing. So, uh, as a novice, tell me, the reason I bring this up is I think there, there are probably going to be a lot of people that listen to this podcast who fall into one of two categories, either they've done it and they love it, or they probably have never tried it before. They've stuck with bass or they've stuck with panfish or they've stuck with trout, or maybe they don't fish at all. Uh, and they, you know, they're, they're intrigued a bit by it. So, um, as a, as a total novice, where do I start? Like, where, where do I go fishing? Where do these creatures live? What kind of stuff do I need? Where do I start? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also just before that, there's also probably a bucket just to call it out of experienced, really awesome anglers who don't want anything to do with muskie. And I I have some buddies like that. (laughs) Like they, I'd put them up against anybody when it comes to smallmouth bass or driftless trout, but they're just, it doesn't, it doesn't get in their blood and that's okay. Right. That's, Mm. we're not, we're not forcing anything on anyone. Um, But yeah, where do you start? So I think, I'll start with like, where do these fish live and where do we find them? And, you know, the different types. And, and I think, you know, their natural range is kind of, uh, Canada, upper Midwest, you know, um, Wisconsin, Minnesota, um, there's parts of the great lakes, you know, around there. It's kind of where they're known. Um, that's kind of been blown out of the water over the last 20 years because they've been stocked all over the country where they, where they can live. So there's, incredibly healthy musky populations, you know, from New York, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, you can even get down into Southern Missouri and there's a couple lakes with really quality populations of them. Then you look out West and they have some of these deep, clear, clean lakes and they're stocking tiger musky. So it's, you know, I think the world thinks, I mean, I have a bias here, but when you think about musky, you probably are identifying like, you know, Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota, New York, Canada is like the the go-to spots, but we have customers all the way from Washington state down to, you know, Florida, they're driving up to Kentucky to go fish for muskie. So really, really good populations. And a lot of that, just to call it out is because of, uh, you know, a lot has, has to do with muskies Inc, a group that we support, you know, um, now it's, almost 50 years ago now is when they really started to tell people like, yo, when we catch these fish, let's not like shoot them next to the boat and kill them all. Uh, maybe, maybe we should release them. Like they're not necessarily, you know, you'll talk to some people that say they're really good fish to eat and, um, they are, they taste like pike. They're delicious, but that's not why we fish for them, especially these trophy fish. And if we want to have continuous trophy potential, you know, they're, talking about a fish that at, at best it's like one fish per acre in a, wow. in a given in a given system and they don't have super great spawn um success i mean they they do naturally reproduce in some spots but they're they're, they're sensitive they spawn after pike so if they live with pike pike eat their fingerlings a lot and their offspring so there's a lot of factors that you know they're they're kind of really stupid when it comes to spawning you know we have other fish that protect you know, their, their eggs or their nest muskies, they just kind of spray and pray and they just hope, (laughs) hope it works out. So it's tough to, you know, you gotta, you gotta really, that's where they muskies Inc. came in, kind of introduced and pushed the catch and release ethic. They helped start stocking they started working with a lot of the state agencies, the DNR and wildlife groups to really 
build that. And a lot of that, because there's this recreational push, people wanted to go catch them. And they realized that they weren't there anymore because we were having declining populations after the uh, kind of assassination period of musky fishing. Um, <laughs> you know, so we built it all back up. And I think a lot of our fisheries, no matter what you say about some of the nuances, our fisheries would not be where they're at without those groups getting involved. Wow. Um, so then where do we look? Well, they're, they're freshwater fish. So, you know, they, they need kind of a, a water temp in the range of, you know, they can, you know, forties to 75 is kind of what their ideal range is. You know, as we talked about with 80 plus, they can survive, but they're not thriving at that, at that water temp. And uh, it can also get too cold. We don't really worry too much about that. Um, because you know, all of our stuff freezes over, they go deep or they move into lakes and move out of some of the rivers. So they're, they're able to survive. They're cold blooded fish. They can survive in pretty cold temps. Um, they will get really lethargic and, and not do a lot of eating, um, with low metabolism, but, um, so they have a pretty, you know, wide range of survivability, water quality and spawn habitat also play into that. Um, especially if you're talking about getting natural and wild muskies. You know, we live in Madison. We have actually probably a world-class muskie fishery right here in the city um, with, with a few of the lakes. Um, but that's all stocked. There's no natural reproduction. And a lot of that, I probably will, will get some people mad at me for saying this, but it's pretty obvious that it has a lot to do with water quality. Um, wow. <laughs> when we're issuing warnings that people can't swim in the lakes and they can't eat the fish in the lakes, uh, you know, and every inch of that shoreline is completely developed. It doesn't, it doesn't help the muskies uh, naturally reproduce. Let's just put it that, we'll put it softly. Like Yeah. That. So let me, let me ask you real quick. We're talking a lot about spawn habitat and I, I do want to bring us back to sort of conservation yep, at the very yep, end, yep, yep, but, yep. but no, no, I not bring us back to the topic, bring yeah, us back okay. to uh, yep. conservation later on. What is good spawn habitat? Like what are they looking for as opposed to what other fish are able to to make do with yep so they're looking you know they're looking for it there is a little bit of variation between the strains of muskie so you got some of the leech lake great lake strains that will spawn in a little bit deeper water but the the general what are they looking at is kind of the shallow mucky weedy bays um, okay okay you know and, and you can usually identify them in the, they're they're typically the bays that warm up the fastest in spring so you know the north end of the lake is always a good spot to check out. If you're on rivers, you know, some of those backwater sloughs that are, you know, not necessarily spots you'd look to fish, but in springtime, that's where they're definitely going to be uh, spawning. And that's a kind of okay. a cool period because you get to see a lot of muskies. You know, you will, you will visually see them swimming around because they're in shallow water and they're paired up swimming together. So that's, that's typical. There's a lot of, you know, you'll find muskies spawning in some weird spots for sure. But uh, that's kind of the 80-20 rule, if you will. Sure, sure. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I yeah, just, yeah. No, you mentioned spawning habitat, and I was like, I got to know what we're looking yeah, for. Yeah, no, okay. no, and interrupt at any point. Um, I think the final point there is it's just tough when we start to see a lot of lakes, especially um, in some rivers, get all that shoreline gets developed because mm -hmm. we there is, there is some subtle impact on the muskies. They will move out of those areas and... Um, you know, so we, we see that, you know, protected shorelines and public water is usually, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out, it's usually better for the fisheries than, mm. you know, a bunch of buildings and docks and, and houses. Imagine but, um, 
yeah yeah it's like i'm not i'm not i'm not there's no new information there um so kind of back so that's kind of like where are muskies and i think you know deeper than that there's a lot of i always encourage people to check out their dnr and their wildlife agencies because most of them are publishing where the wisconsin dnr puts out an awesome it's like a full pdf on muskies and they literally go county by county lakes and rivers and they classify like trophy lake you know great great um great number of fish natural reproduction no natural reproduction um so there's a lot that you can pick up there and then there's also you know i think a lot of um there's you know several bodies of water that are just known for musky i mean in wisconsin here we have the chippewa flowage right that's where rumored at least one or two of the world records were caught way way back in the day um, you know, you have the St. Lawrence River up in New York and Canada. You have, you know, Georgian Bay up in, uh, you know, Canada as well. And you have Leech Lake. So you have Lac Sewell, you know, a lot of these lakes where if you just look up, you know, big musky lakes on, on the Google machine, um, they there's a lot of like, okay, we know there's muskies there. And I think that's a thing I encourage people starting out to look at is, this fish is hard enough. Like go try and find a body of water that has a good population of them. Um, and there's some that are different. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be hot spotting by saying this, but here in Wisconsin and in Madison, we have a lake right in downtown that is historically known as one of the densely, most densely populated lakes for muskie, Lake Wingra. Um, everybody knows about it. If you've seen the jumping muskies over the dam, oh, yeah. that's, yep. that's, that's Lake Wingra. Um, and it's, just over like a fish per acre and it's like that is and and guess what you can still go for two days and not encounter one um so <laughs> but like i would encourage people to go there because of all the things you can do like do wrong at least you know you're putting lures and flies in front of fish um and that's a lot of where it begins is just making sure if you are going out to target muskie like make sure that they live there um you know where they where they are throughout the season like most fish changes you know we we kind of try and follow them off the spawn beds in spring as they start to migrate to you know in, in the early season it's about finding warmer water and then once we hit the, the kind of stable water temps they get into their summer pattern and and they start to spread out um some in deep water some still up shallow and then as start things start to cool off and fall their location becomes a little bit more predictable they start to transition into some of the deeper water um or some of the bigger bigger structure spots on lakes and, and follow some of the bait fish at that point so um you know that's that's where us fly anglers we we learn a lot from the conventional guys right there's mm. there's like just to give you an idea i think there are three books written on musky fly fishing i would wager there's probably 300 written on musky fishing in general like <laughs> so like like where they are where they live what type of habitat like just because i'm using a fly rod doesn't mean i'm not going to try and learn that from you know jim sarek or pete mayna or you know doug wagner some of the really well-known conventional anglers um so kind of took a, a high level route in terms of like, where do we find them? Where do they live? Some of the things to think about when chasing them at different times of the year. Any, any questions on that? I'll kind of go into gear and tactics a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm, uh, where I'm wondering now. So yes, on the gear, yes, on the tactics. And then why should we consider, let's say we're fishing with, uh, you know, conventional tackle, why should we make the jump? 
into yep. using fly gear. Yep. Yep. Great. You're, you're queuing me up nicely. I like it. Oh, good. Um, good. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I will say t- there are specific musky tactics and gear at the same time. You will always pretty much throughout the season hear about the guy on a walleye jig, you know, catching a 45 inch musky. Like we just, and I, and I think the, the larger point there is while there are some guys that have built careers and are incredibly proficient anglers for muskie, I would be hard pressed if any one of them calls themselves an expert hmm. because they just, I don't even know if I can swear on this, but they just screw with you a little bit and they yeah. just, you think, you think, you know, and then they, then they surprise you and, oh, they're going to be here, but actually they're over there. And there's just, the stories are endless of this, the things that they do coming up and eating trolling motors and oar blades and, you know, ripping off smallmouth off your line. Like, so you have to kind of go into it knowing like it's a little bit of a crapshoot, but mm. we can increase the odds in our favor. So using the right gear, um, conventional, that's typically, you know, pretty like medium to medium heavy or even heavy action, you know, seven, six to eight, six foot uh, bait casting rods. Um, So you're kind of your traditional bait caster. Um, You know, that's probably tried and true. And the number of, I couldn't, we could spend 10 hours and I wouldn't be able to name all the types of baits and lures there are for conventional muskies. Um, You got everything and there's new ones coming out every day. But, you know, you're looking for, it's a predatory, predatory fish. So you're looking to imitate bait fish, imitate forage, and also just entice a reaction out of a predator, right? It's like, it's like if you were, you're just trying to kind of piss them off enough where they, Mm -hmm. they strike, I think is a lot of it. You know, we like to think we're putting baits in front of feeding muskies, but I think they're oftentimes, um, they're just, you know, whether it's, um, protecting their territory or they're just the big bad bully of the water they're gonna you know they don't want that small fish swimming around (laughs) so we get a lot of reaction strikes and i think some of the following is is more just kind of shooing things out of their way or just letting them know you know who's the boss um where where the kind of fly tactics come in is you know similar We're, we're using pretty heavy duty gear um so in terms of rods and fly fishing that looks like you know, at the bare minimum, eight to nine weights. And I would say all eight and nine weights are not the same. There's a couple that are good musky rods. The rest of them are much probably on the uh, being too light of tackle. Okay. So the what, bread and what butter, makes them too light? Um, well, first and foremost, an eight weight and a 10 inch bucktail fly. Let me see if I have one behind me. I don't right now, but a big musky fly is just not going to be able to be casted with an eight weight. your arm is going to go out you can throw smaller stuff with an eight weight and then secondly the reason i think they get a dark look is because you know that uh, you know you're you're prolonging the fight you know you're Mm -hmm. you're not using as heavy a gear as you could to land the fish quickly right it's Mm -hmm. a catch and release trophy fishery so 99 percent of them are being released um but like i said I'm not here to preach that you can't use an eight weight. Um, again, there are a couple eight weights that are much more like 10 weights when it comes to fly rods and they actually perform really well for muskie. Um, that being said, bread and butter, what we fish with personally, what we recommend to folks um, is 10 to 12 weights. Um, I think again, every 10 and 12 weights not created equal, but for the most part, 10 and 12 weights will be enough. And then I think underneath that, 
looking for 10 and 12 weights that are actually built for muskie. And this is kind of a new thing in the last five years is, you know, rod designers, both small and large, giving focus to the, the sport of muskie and pike um, that are similar and building rods for them. So for instance, um, you know, while you might use a 12 weight tarpon fishing, you're throwing a pretty small fly and you're for the most part, not blind casting all day long. Mm-hmm. But with muskie, you know, the fish might be smaller, but I'm throwing a huge fly and I am throwing it as long as I can for 10 hours straight and just casting and casting and casting. So, you know, the more the rod can help me do that, the better. The mm-hmm. second big difference we get in rod design is when it comes to the whole boat side ordeal that is musky. Um, you know, they 50% or more of the action and the catching happens at your feet while you're next to the boat with, you know, 12 to 36 inches of line out the tip of your rod. Wow. Um, so if you have a really soft, flexible tip, that might make it easy for casting, but it's going to completely put you at a disadvantage when you have to get hooks into that fish right at your feet. Wow. Um, so that's where, you know, there's often kind of the terminology musky rods or broomsticks because they can be a little stiff. You know, it's not your three weight fiberglass rod by any means that you just get to beautifully unfurl out there. We're just kind of hucking and ducking. And, um, but it's cool that we have, I mean, just to rattle off some that we carry, some that we don't, but we have Loomis, Sage, um, Echo, you know, major rod builders building musky rods now musky fly rods and then we also have some that are kind of near and dear to our heart because they're they're small companies that really started with musky rods chippewa river custom rods up in northern wisconsin wolf rod co down in kentucky that they're they were really at the at the forefront of like i'm gonna build a rod just for musky um you know not not oh yeah you can use that 10 weight for musky it'll do okay like they really thought it through and they're musky guys so that was kind of cool but um, 10 to 12 weights look for musky rods there's a lot of different tactics kind of within that I don't want to go on too much about that but for the most part we're aerial casting uh, make sure your double haul is really good and if you don't know what that is it's just a way to basically reduce the amount of false casting you have to do um, which is kind of what fly fishing requires to get all your line out mm-hmm. um, but there are a couple other tactics I'm trying to keep this as a broad message but sure there are different different ways there's enough people doing it now that there's been a spectrum of how people fly fish for muskie and the same kind of applies to um, the flies you know there are people that all year long just like the conventional anglers are throwing huge 16 18 inch flies Jeez. and there okay. are people there are people more like me who i kind of have a progression throughout the year i start small i get bigger Maybe if that fish doesn't look totally in the mood, I'll go back to small. I'm, I'm kind of changing as I go. And then there are folks that just, for whatever reason, they just throw smaller stuff all year. Now, a small musky fly is still usually like six inches long, but it's just easier to cast and they have more confidence in it. And, and I think if you looked at the conventional anglers, you'd probably find the same disparity. Guys throwing huge stuff all year long, guys trying to mix it up, and guys who might have a small, you know, top raider or a small you know, lure that they just, they know it produces. Mm. Um, couple other things, and then I'll, I'll try and round out that message. You know, I, I don't tend to, as you may have noticed, I don't tend to, you know, have a, a really strong opinion on a lot unless it's kind of been backed by science. But the one, the one area that I will tell people, 
is when you're talking about the the tippet or the uh so we call it tippet and fly fishing or bite guard if you're a conventional angler you, you're going to think of that as your leader um whatever it is it's the end of your line that connects to your fly or your lure mm -hmm. i'm 100 percent preaching wire i don't think um fluorocarbon is the way folks should go um the obvious reason is musky have sharp teeth they can bite through fluorocarbon even if it's 100 120 pounds the other reason is i just don't think it fishes as well it's really thick and stiff and um, i understand there's some lures and conventional fishing that have an application for it but in fly fishing wire is the name of the game in my opinion you don't see enough of these fish so why would you want to use something that opens up the possibility of getting bitten off when you actually do see one um it doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me so that's that's kind of, you know, without going into like a lot of detail on how I set up a fly rod and flies and color and movement, that's kind of the broad strokes. But so if, you know, if I could boil it down in kind of a, you know, a, a one single sentence, it would be, you know, a, there is appropriate tackle for musky fishing, whether you are conventional or fly fishing, it's heavy duty stuff. It's really big lures or flies. And it often comes with wire as a, as a bite guard or leader just to stop from bite offs and whatnot. Okay. And then last point is, you know, we're dealing with fish that, you know, can push, I mean, the world record is 70 pounds. Um, wow. So they're enormous. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, I'm six, five pushing two thirty. Like that was, that's a, that's a big thing for even me to pick up. <laughs> and uh, there's guys, you know, so when it comes to, being prepared to catch these fish it is really important like to have the right tools um and i know everyone it's expensive and everyone can't afford it but i think this is where that kind of conservation ethic meets angling success mm -hmm. um you know first and foremost kind of your your tool belt should consist of long nose pliers um you know stuff well not going to show it because we're not on video but uh long nose pliers eight to 11 inches you know you can pick them up at the hardware store we sell them most musky shops are going to sell them um but not something you usually find at a fly shop you'll find the little tiny forceps you know that are meant for picking hooks out of trout those won't work um <laughs> wire cutters or uh hook cutters you know oftentimes that fish is going to inhale that fly or that lure. And you, the safest thing to do is to cut the hook, get the whole thing out of its mouth and then try and, you know, either pluck the, the remaining out or, or whatnot. Um, jaw spreaders is just a tool that kind of opens their mouth. Again, big fish, toothy mouth, full of sharp teeth. Um, sometimes they don't want to keep it open. Um, so those are, those are, I think three, you know, for sure more on the ethical side. I would also recommend folks have a hook sharpener. Um, you know, we're raking our hooks over rocks and wood, and sometimes they're going into the back of our shoulders if we're not too careful. Uh, you know, make sure it's sharp. Again, like it, it's a bony mouth. You don't get a lot of shots at this fish. You should probably be sharpening your hooks regularly. Um, and if they're not, you know, able to pluck your skin or scratch your nail effortlessly, they're not sharp enough. Um, and then beyond that, a net. It's just... You know, I love what we see in the tarpon world where like they're, they're not netting as much fish, but they're not even bringing, they're not even bringing those fish out of the water. Mm -hmm. And that's, we don't have those rules in musky and everyone wants their, you know, their hero shot. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rain on any parades there, but use a big net. Um, it just, A, it's safer for you. You can get in there, you can get the stuff out of the fish's mouth. 
Um, and B, it's going to increase your chances of actually landing that fish safely. Um, you know, you're not putting a fish in a little trout fish pond net with its half of its body flailing out. You know, it's got plenty of room to move. Um, I mean, we, we have a picture posted on our uh, social media, I think, of my wife, who's 5'7", and, like, she is completely engulfed by the net when she stands oh. up. So, you know, like, wow. big, big nets okay. is, I think, um, you know, and it's tough, right? You go walk and wade down a river or to your local lake spot, and that's a pain in the butt to carry on your back, but then all of a sudden you catch one, and you're like, crap, what do I do now? Um, so that's where using that, if you can. Yeah, sure. yeah. So tell me a little bit about, I, I, um, one thing about me, I am, I'm a hobbyist through and through. Like I, I, that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, right? It's like, I want to absorb everything that Wisconsin has to offer. And so when I'm hearing this, I'm like, yeah, man, let's do it. Um, but my wife's going to kill me because I'm going to go buy (laughs) a bunch of stuff. And she's going to yep. be like, you just got you just done get your wife to stuff. come with you to come get her to come with you. That solves all your problems. You know, <laughs> I got her to go trout fishing with me. There you go. Uh, this past, uh, sp- or this spring. And I actually, uh, I was like, well, if I'm taking her somewhere, we're going to Viroqua. So, oh, uh, yep. yeah, we got out there and got after it and had a lot did of you success. Get, get up to the driftless angler or the driftless cafe. We did. We went to both. Yeah. There you go. Both. It was, it got was the full experience. Phenomenal. Yeah. It was, it was terrific, but um, as I start hearing this, I'm thinking gear and I'm thinking money. Uh, and I know there are some, some areas where you just can't skimp. Like yep. you can, there are some things, okay. You can kind of get away with saving a little money here or there. And there are some things that you cannot skimp on. What are the things that you would say you can't skimp here? Go, go buy whatever rod you want, but don't skimp on the fly yep. or yep. something like that. Yep. Well, the funny thing is where I'm at now, and I think it's more of a, it's a, it's like a subconscious justifying everything. It's like, oh, don't skimp on anything. It's musky. That, that's yep. probably not true. And that's just a reason <laughs> to collect a bunch of shit. But um, as far as fly fishing goes, um, there, it's probably easier to talk about where you can skimp. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you're real. While these are big, mean, predatory fish that are going to give you more of a street fight and a, you know, a battle royale, they're not peeling line off like steelhead or tarpon or bonefish. You know, we have, we have on average like 100 feet of fly line on a reel. I don't recommend anybody cast more than 60 feet because you can't, like your chance of hooking that fish beyond 60 feet, I think approaches zero. Okay. Um, just with the length and the stretch of the fly line and the bony mouth and all that stuff and slack. Um, so we're in that 40 to 60 feet range, which usually means you have another almost 50 feet of fly line on your reel. I am still waiting in 10 years more for the first muskie to rip off 50 feet of line on me. Just never happened. So what we do and where we can skimp here is, you know, you can get pretty cheap reels. I mean, my first muskie reel was like a 1999 hunk of metal from Cabela's, you know, and it's just huge and heavy, but it held line and it worked and it was 19 bucks. Um, you don't need a huge reel either. You know, if you're a, if you're a tarpon, if you have a tarpon 12 weight, you're going to have a, probably a 12 weight reel because you have 200 yards of backing and then you have a hundred feet of fly line and it fills up that whole reel. Uh, well, well I, I put like 10 or 20 yards of backing on. I mean, you can barely wow. probably even see it on the reel again, because they're not, I'm not casting that much line. And I'm also never having all that line pulled off on a fish. What that allows us to do is then you not only go for cheaper reels, but also go for an eight weight, put an eight weight reel on a 12 weight, 
works great, sheds a couple ounces. And, um, you know, you can apply that budget, I guess, elsewhere. There you go. Um, I, I think, you know, you, you can, you can get by with a pretty inexpensive rod. I, I started with a really cheap rod. Um, over time, you're going to feel it in your mm -hmm. arm and your shoulder and what you're able to cast and the grip and how it holds up to the, the fight. Um, but, you know, for instance, like we carry one and on, it's, it's like a, it's used by guides all over the country for muskie. Wolf Rod Co. They, 250 bucks comes with a case, comes with an extra rod tip and it's like built for muskie. Wow. Um, like that's, yeah, I know you can probably go find some stuff on Amazon for 50 bucks and sure go do that. If you're on a budget, like my, my, my method is like, get out there and go fish. Um, don't let price stop you and you don't need a thousand dollar rod. If you want to buy a thousand dollar rod, they're pretty sweet, but like, you know, we don't, you don't need it. You know, you're not going to hear that from me. You don't need it. Um, I would say where like, if you had to spend money and you were like starting to think about, you know, skimping a little bit, the area where it's going to burn you is going to be fly line okay. leader and flies. So fly line, I mean, that's, that's kind of the meat and potato of the whole thing. That's what casts the fly out there. And that's what stays hooked up to the fish and the premium fly lines last a little bit longer. Um, especially if you treat them right and you're watching your gear, um, they cast better. And now we're starting to also see some fly line that has enough core strength um, to hold up to fish because historically you would ask any of these world, world-class guides, some of who I mentioned earlier, when they talk about encountering those mega, those mega fish, you know, it's, they're usually called tackle busters because wow. they're, they're busting through 30 pound fly line, um, which is kind of the standard. So now we're starting to see some of these brands like, Oh, we got to make them fly line for musky. 50 pound isn't crazy. Um, same with leader material, right? Like if we're not talking about seven X tippet here, you can leave that shit at home. Um, you know, we run 40 pound fluoro or mono at a minimum. I think a lot of people look at the price of fluorocarbon and they're like, ah, but it's like that it, it, it is better for your leader material. Um, and then the wire, you know, we're running premium, premium wire, seven by seven stainless steel, um, nylon coated. That's just like, that is the, like when I'm thinking I'm on the water and I'm thinking about what could go wrong and what I need to be checking to make sure it's perfect in case I hook into a fish, it's my leader. You know, if I see a little knot, you know, if I get a wind knot and I'm trout fishing, I'm going to cast all day with that wind knot probably. And people might laugh at me, but I don't care. Like it doesn't matter. You know, um, if I'm musky fishing and I got a little kink or a little scuff or there's just something up with my leader, it's getting swapped out right away. No questions wow. asked. That's just like I, the $20 for more wire or whatever. Like it's not worth it. It's not worth it in my opinion to do all of that work, go through all of that trouble to then, you know, tie a crappy knot on crappy line. Yeah. And then lastly, the flies, you know, there's because kind of back to what I was saying earlier, you know, you have this whole cottage industry of musky fishing that that's kind of spawned in it's in and of itself. Like you have a lot of amazing independent fly tires um, who are producing stuff that's like tried and true and tested. And it's not just that it entices strikes that it stays together when they eat it and then they can use it again and again and again. Um, meanwhile, there's also crap out there, right. From, from overseas or just, just people on social media, just putting something that looks good to the person's eye, but you put it in the water and it might disintegrate. So mm. the materials we use in our fly, we, 
we we are for sure solving for something that looks fishy and is going to entice a strike and it's you know it swims in an erratic way but durability is huge like it's Mm -hmm. gotta it's gotta hold up um because otherwise you know if you have two hooks and your your hook your second hook is connected with mono it like it's gonna come apart like all of that stuff really makes sure you know you're using a quality product there and we also encourage people I think one of the coolest parts about fly fishing and musky, but it's not specific to musky fly fishing is, is the full circle of being able to produce your own flies, tie your own flies, see it, have an idea. You know, maybe you saw a musky chase a perch the night before and you go tie a perch pattern and then you go out on the water and you catch a fish with something you made last night. Like, Oh, I love that. I love that aspect. And I know you can make lures too, but it's just a little bit more complicated and there's so many lures to buy that why, why bother? But like the fly tying is a very cool aspect and we're very much still in the early phase of that. You know, we, we have a couple patterns. Um, you know, you got Brad Bowen's Buford, which is probably the most iconic musky fly. You got Blaine Chocolate's Game Changer. Chris Willen's got the uh, double nickel. Um, you know, we have a couple others on our site. Matt, Matt's uh, from Adaptive Fly has the yard sale. Like these are, these are becoming synonymous with a Suic or a, a double 10 cowgirl or a phantom tail, like where they start to have their own kind of standing, but there's still so much that we can do, you know, and we, and we get a lot of that from gear. You know, we see a new gear lure and it swims like this, or it makes this sound. And it's like, how can we recreate that as a fly? Wow. Um, so that's like, don't skimp on it. And then also I, I encourage people to dive into the deep end on that. Cause that's like a, there's people that just tie flies. They don't even fish because it becomes wow. its own hobby in and of itself. Sure. Sure. Well, one of the things that I noticed as I was exploring your website is you guys have a starter kit, which I was like, yeah, that's pretty sweet. Can you, I know yeah. you're, you're not like super plug in your shop, but man, I want to hear about this thing. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, there's been combo kits. You can probably go to any Cabela's in the country, any fly shop in the country, whether it's gear or fly, there's combos, right? Mm-hmm. But what we wanted to do with musky, there's not a musky combo, really, um, that pairs together good line, reel, and a rod. You know, typically you buy those combos and you kind of get crap fly line. And yep. as I just said to you earlier, that's one of the most important parts. Yep. Um, so what we did is we took... Um, basically all of our, some of the rods that we really like. And we just made it easy for folks because we heard a lot of folks who either don't want to put it all together or they're, they don't know what we're talking about. Like, what do you, there's like 45 lines on your website. Which one do I pick and which rod? So it was just kind of a, a convenience, you know, we call it a starter kit. It could be called a combo. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it's for beginners by any means. I think it, it lends itself well to someone getting into it, but yeah, it's just, it's a really high quality rod. So you have several rods to choose from, musky rods, all kind of approved, if you will. And we pair that up with premium fly line. Um, I typically, we, we, we include, unless you say otherwise, full intermediate fly line. That's very much the most versatile, probably highly used musky fly line, just because of what it allows you to do throughout the season. Um, we'll spool it up. We'll put it on a nice, cheap eight weight reel. Well, it's not too cheap. It's like a hundred dollar reel from Temple Fork. And, uh, you know, include a couple leaders and a few flies. So literally, you know, that thing comes and you're ready to go and you can go out fish and have confidence in it. Yeah. That's great for, um, 
for for anybody but for especially folks starting out where they yeah because that that's where i would be right like go into your website and it's like oh my word look at all of this i have no clue right where to start and it, so. it comes with it you know it comes with a little bit of a discount too so you you buy all that stuff individually you'll probably spend about 150 bucks more so nice okay out a little bit there too yeah sweet well i i highly recommend folks head over to your website and check that out because it it looked pretty awesome uh, appreciate it and i'll just add there too you know um we're online only for now it's a, a underlined bolded for now um stay tuned on that in the future we got some okay. exciting things happening All right. but um i'm here like our whole thing is like 24 7 you know get that local feel from your couch call me message me on facebook instagram i got customers texting me you know we we want to talk to you so if you have questions or you want to learn about it or you want to pick my brain about it. Like I, that's what I love about this. Not, you know, not selling gear. That's not why I got into it. It's, it's sure. connecting with those folks. And you know, that might sound like the cliche BS answer, but it's true. That's like the most fun. I get up in the morning for it. Jen jokes. Cause I'll probably, I could easily burn four hours a day, just chatting people's ear off about it. So <laughs> give me a ring, shoot me a message. I'm, I'm here. I'm here to help and, and love doing it. Yeah. That that's one of the cool things about uh, a, a, a niche market like this, I guess you could say like, a lot of this really is building and and giving back to and being part of a community that is it it's not all fishermen everywhere this is a very specific community that you're able to be a part of and sort of be part of that growing right yeah uh, hell yeah and i i i think that's one of the most special parts about i would say fishing is you have all of these little sub sub cults but you all you kind of find your people you know, yeah. like if you're willing to go out in 40 degrees with 10 mile an hour winds and throw a fly for 10 hours, like <laughs> we probably have a lot more in common than just that. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. So. yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, speaking of, uh, of you find your people, uh, one of the, as I was browsing around and I saw your website and I was thinking, hmm, maybe I should have, have these folks on. Then I saw your page devoted to conservation and I thought, yep that's it. I've got to get these, I got to get these guys on because it's like, these are my people, right? Like there's a, there's a commitment to conservation and actually uh, you guys donate 5% of proceeds, right. To, yep. to conservation efforts. And uh, we talked a little bit in an email about um, how there is uh, some conservation devoted to muskie They're they're stocked, but I think there's a lot more that we could do, especially when we're talking about the disappearing of uh, spawning habitat. And that yep. sort of thing. We're talking about overdeveloped lake shores, uh, you know. So tell me a bit about where muskie conservation has been, maybe where we are right now. And as you look to the future, you say, "Here's where we need to go for the future of this species." Yep, love it. Um, so where I start with this is like this is the why. This is the why behind we got into this business. You know, I, I said it, when we when we had the whole plan and we had the vendors and it was ready to go. And it was really the question of like, the only way we can do this and I can continue to get up in the morning and feel good about myself is if this is a net positive to Muskie. Wow. If all I do is sell more gear and get more people out on the water and that just leads to more abused fisheries, like I'll close the door tomorrow. Like it, it's not worth it to me. And um we, you know, we're small now, we're just getting started, but we think as we bring that community together and we, we kind of 
give them an outlet for that energy because I do think there is an energy of anglers who want to be more conservation minded. They're just, well, what can I do to help? How do I get involved? What and, and that isn't very clear today. So that's that's why we that's like our purpose, our true north, um, where we're at with conservation. So I talked a little bit about earlier about where we've come from. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago, 50 years, where we were literally, you got a fish next to the boat and you were shooting it. <laughs> wow. Like, wow. just because it was like, Lick, get it in. You know, it's a keeper is how they, they referred to it. One of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite musky books is Time on the Water. Um, and it's for some people probably hard to read in 2021 because he talks about keepers. Wow. I need to catch wow. a keeper. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a relic to the past. Mm-hmm. Where we're at today is... You know, we do have a strong conservation ethic around catch and release, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you'll see that. And I think some folks are really strong about that. If you see someone, you know, talking about keeping a muskie, you're going to get all the, the, the swarms of online comments. So like, no, no, no. And, you know, that's usually a little misguided. But the, the core of it is people are pushing a catch and release ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let that fish go. If you want to eat fish, go catch pike or panfish you know, that, that's, it's a much better eating fish. And, you know, you're not going to put food on the table trying to catch musky. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, um, unless you're, you know, a guide and you're catch and release fishing for them. But anyway, um, so that's, that's kind of like a pillar of our foundation, um, which is very strong and good. And I think we're only going to see that increase as we get more people into the sport. I will admit, right, there is a little bit of a paradox to the whole thing where we're sticking these fish with sharp, pointy objects and then we're letting them go. You know, I've, yeah, we're playing with our food a little bit, but I think that's comes back to the outlet for this. Like if, yeah, we get to go play with our food, but we are the most passionate group and we care about, you know, the species and we're the ones, you know, protecting them. I think the net is a positive, right? Mm-hmm. It's often said that like the people that care most about deer are the deer hunters. Yep. And, and like that is true, even though we're not hunting these fish like 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 we are maybe a deer, uh, you know, we're, we're catch and release. So there's a little irony there, but you just kind of have to wade into it and know that like if you care about them and you want to catch more of them, that means you're probably going to take care of the water. If the muskies are doing all right, so are the rest of the fish because it's a little bit of a trickle down. Um, so where we, I think, have room to improve is we are, um, and I, I, you know, I'll say this, I'll probably get some heat for it, but I, I just, I just, I have to say it, I think is like, we have kind of rested on our laurels of stocking mm. and we, it's often said like, this is the glory days of musky fishing. And there's no question that stocking fish has restored and got us to this point. Is it the end all be all? I don't think it is. I think we can look to other examples that have shown, especially in, you know, the salmon and steelhead fisheries where runs of fish have been wiped out and they've invested millions of dollars into stocking and there's no success and they keep doing it and they keep doing it. And they've really started to come back and think about how can we manage for wild and native fish? Well, that starts with managing the environment and managing the watershed. And what's, what's the runoff and pollution that's going into the water? Are there dams affecting the runs of these wild fish? Is there spawning habitat? Those are the questions. I, when we start talking about that and that becomes, you know, a household conversation for muskie, that's when I know we're, we're moving beyond this stocking program. I mean, we spend a lot of money on fisheries and hatcheries. And I think like 
one muskie is like $17 or something like that. Wow. Don't quote me, but it's like lots of money and there's not a high rate of success in stocking. We all know that they don't naturally reproduce, but we keep doing it. And yet yeah, it, it allows, you know, I, I get that I'm being a little bit, again, paradoxical because I'm sitting here in Madison outside of a great fishery that if we stop stocking tomorrow would go away. Hmm. Yeah. But how do we how do we think about the future and manage for the water? And and again, I think like I think that's common sense because mm-hmm. the consequence of that is not just great musky fishing. I mean, in Madison, that could mean we actually get to go swim in the lake. God forbid, <laughs> that's a crazy idea. Like my dog can go swim in the lake and not die. I'd like that. I'd also yeah. like good musky fishing. Um, you <laughs> know where we've yeah, and we've kind of. I get it. I'm a realist. I get, I get why the business of stocking works and, you know, it allows us to develop an entire shoreline and have a musky fishery, but we're kind of getting to that point where having our cake and eating it too, isn't, isn't working out. Yeah. Um, as we look at warming water, as we look at more polluted water and we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing, you know, gnarly fish with weird stuff happening. You know, we haven't totally scientifically connected the dots, but Again, back to what we chatted about earlier, it doesn't take a rocket science. Like if we don't even want to eat the fish out of the water, we don't even want to swim in it, like we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. So that's, can we direct enough energy and, and you know, at least try to, to put that out there? It, it's going to be an unpopular opinion today. I get it. I, I understand yeah. that. And I'm willing to kind of be laughed out of the room. But um, <laughs> like, I just think we have to try. We have to, we have to give it a shot and we're spending a lot of money on stocking. What if we spent 25% on habitat protection or, or you name it, something yeah. other than just, than just trying to stock fish. So yeah, and I think I, that's I, an opportunity, right? It's an yeah, opportunity. For sure. For sure. And I think you mentioned several things there while you were talking that really suggest to me that it's, it's not just musky fishermen who should care about musky conservation, right? I mean, it, there are benefits all over the place. We're saving money from the DNR. We are uh, making the lake a safer and cleaner place for kids to jump in the water, dogs to jump in the water, whatever. Uh, we're now able to eat, maybe eat other fish that we pull from, from the lake. Uh, yeah. yeah, so just lots and, of reasons and- for people who maybe don't even fish for musky can say, you know yep. what, we care about this fish and we care about preserving it. Yep. And, and frankly, like back to being a real, like you have to make those arguments, right? It yep. is, it is at the end of the day, a financial argument, like, you know, how much money are we spending on stocking and cleaning up the algae blooms and, you know, putting up signs and preventing like, what if we spent a little bit of that on, you know, but, but again, I, it might also just be a human species thing. We, we definitely like to treat the symptoms, not the root cause wherever we go, healthcare, you know, cities, <laughs> poverty, it's, it's kind of pervasive. So maybe we just have to, there's a bigger theme there. Perhaps Now you're, now you're fishing for the negative feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Who cares? That's great. That's great. Well, how, how can the person who's maybe hearing this and saying, okay, I'm motivated. Like this is getting me excited for conservation how can they get involved? What, what would you recommend they do? I, I would say the first thing is kind of to join and be a part of some of these organizations, right? Like okay. that's where it's happening. And if you're just on the sidelines, like get involved. They, they, those organizations, which I'll name in a second, like they're based on the people that are part of them. And if the people that are part of them aren't representative, of all the people fishing, like that's why they might be 
you know, it's the same thing with politics. Like if you don't, if you're not happy with your local representatives and you're just waiting for election day, yeah, it's going to continue to be an issue. So get mm -hmm. involved early. Muskie's Inc. There's local chapters throughout the whole country, you know, and some of them, you know, you might, you might have heard stories or this and that, and this one's not good. It's like, well, get involved then. And, and you know, can you change it? Can you bring your friends along? You know, like for instance, there's like a lot of fly fishermen and women in with Madison who aren't involved in Muskie's Inc., hmm. the local chapter. Well, that's why that perspective isn't heard. Um, yeah. So that's that's one, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers I, I love to support just because of what they've done throughout the country protecting public land. Um, that doesn't always tie directly to Muskie, but it's, it's, it's indirectly, you know, whether it's a river that's through public land or um, we, we just, we, we don't see public land growing at this point in time. So the more yep. we can protect that, I think the more, you know, this interconnected system of wildlife is going to be protected. Um, and then again, like not to go too off on a tangent, but like I'm sitting here staring at like 550 bucktails that will be used <laughs> to produce musky flies and lures that came, you know, that deer might've been running through and drinking water out of a musky river. Um, so like it, there is a little bit of, uh, you know, tapping into that kind of circle of life in the outdoors when you're, when you're getting into this, that you want everything to thrive. And I think yeah. whatever your thing is, whether it's deer hunting, turkey hunting, panfish, trout, steelhead, musky, you know, there's an avenue to have an impact there. And then yeah. once you get involved in these organizations, you're going to, you know, there's river cleanups and lake cleanups and, uh, we have the clean lakes Alliance. You know, we need more people talking about water quality. We need more money donated to, you know, stock fish today because they will go away and then start pushing the conversation forward. And I think there's even, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do some of this stuff, but you know, the more people, I think there's room for more people and more ideas, right? The more critical mass we have, the more smart people we have involved, the more um, kind of energy behind that movement that we have, you're going to start to hear people listen, right? I mean, it started with, when you look at what made things change out West in terms of the steelhead and salmon fisheries, like it started with the fishermen who were saying mm. like, this isn't working. Um, so that's, that's where that kind of groundswell begins. And, and we have to, we have to create it because it will go away like this. If we don't, if we just, if we just, you know, expect it to continue, it's not going to. Yeah. Um, so get involved. It's like this cliche message, but you know, and if you have a question is where, you know, there's a couple awesome organizations on our website. And there's a lot more that I can help point folks to. Um, but that's, that's probably the big one, right? And I think yeah. also just having that ethic and sharing that ethic, you know, that that's why you fish. That's, that's why I fish, right? Some people, it's sure, just to have fun. That's awesome. But do you want your kids to have fun and the kids' kids to have fun? Because, you know, it, it's, not, it's not some per perpetual thing. We have to be the caretakers of it. And um, that's, that only happens with people getting involved. So that's a little that's bit right. of a rant there, but no, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of the reason that I started this podcast is, is uh, I moved up from the deep South. I look around at the state of Wisconsin and I'm like, wow, look at all the opportunity. And then my first thought as I saw the opportunity all around was like, I want this, not just for me, but for my kids and for my kids, kids, like I want to spread a passion for what we have as a resource uh, here in the state of Wisconsin. It's just, it's tremendous. And what a shame it would be if we either uh, don't uh, start looking at conservation issues and start taking care of the resource that we have, or 
we do what has happened in some other conversations where we let the only people being verbal about conservation uh, are not anglers or are not hunters and who maybe don't want people to be fishing and hunting. Um, we, as those who uh, enjoy the resource firsthand, need to be the primary ones in the conversation. We need to yep. be involved. We need to be putting our money where our mouth is. So, uh, yeah. Yep. That's, and, that's, and there's like there's like no better time. We, we just yeah. got like the single largest groundswell of participation in outdoor sports and like the history of civilization. Right. In the last year and a half. Yep. Like let's direct i know a lot of people get worried oh there's going to be more people on my turkey property and there's going to be more people fishing but guess what there's a lot of that if we look around if we pull our heads up and we look around there's a lot more that we can do to improve there's a lot more rivers that could hold musky there's a lot more lakes that could have better populations of them right so like yeah. there, there is yeah. yeah there is a benefit to the fishing and the hunting yeah. if you want to get involved it's it's one of the benefits though absolutely absolutely and better quality habitat can not only support more wildlife, but it can support more people participating, right? Absolutely. At the end of the day. So, uh, well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find out more about you and more about musky uh, fly fishing? Yeah, check us out on social media. We got uh, Instagram and Facebook are the the main channels. Uh, musky Fool is the is the handle for both of those. Otherwise, our website's muskyfool.com. There's the, there's the shameless plug, but yeah, follow along, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. If you got questions or ideas um, or just, just want to chat musky. We are, we are here. Awesome. Well, I would, I would encourage people not only to check you out on Instagram and, and follow you there, but, but to look at your website because it's more than just a retail website. There's a, a huge resource there. You've got a blog going on with tons of useful information. You've got uh, a page on there where you point people to conservation organizations uh, so yeah, it's, it's a really good resource. People really, really need to check that out. So, uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And, uh, I really hope we can do this again because I'm super interested in this. And I think a lot of other people will be, and, uh, I'm going to need somebody to show me the ropes and help me figure awesome. this out. So, well, I, I know a guy, I know a guy, so let me know. Oh, let me know. Excellent. All right. All right. Good deal. <laughs> Josh, well, thank it was you. awesome, man. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I appreciate brother. it. And that's it for this episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to Dan and Muskie Fool Fly Fishing Company for coming on. Looking forward to catching up with him again soon. Like I said earlier, if you haven't already, head over and subscribe to this podcast. Also, subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network so you don't miss this podcast or all the other awesome, relevant outdoor content that is coming out from the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. You can follow us on Instagram. You can also follow Dan and the Musky Fool Fly Fishing Company on Instagram. Also, be sure to head over to their website, muskyfool.com, and check out what they are all about. Until next time, get outside and take advantage of these warm days ahead and all the opportunities that we enjoy as Wisconsin sportsmen. Mm-hmm.